0: You're listening to petliferadio.com. Welcome to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates on the Pet Life Radio Network. I'm Keith Sanderson, host and the sidekick of Max A. Pooch, the canine champion for animals and the environment. This is the unique show where each episode is focused on an animal advocate whose work helps improve or save the lives of animals and makes our planet a better place. Today, we will meet one of the group of people who were called crazy, misfits, and rebels. That was three decades ago. They made a leap of faith to realize a vision that they had long shared. That vision was to create a sanctuary for abandoned and abused animals. The result of that act was the founding of Best Friends Animal Society. Today's guest is Francis Batista, a co-founder of Best Friends, and one of those band of pioneers who believe killing abandoned animals was not the solution. Francis is an example of the diverse background from which animal advocates originate. He studied engineering and physics at NYU and State University of New York at Albany and started his career working in the family real estate business. We will meet Francis in a minute and learn what prompted him to leave his family's business and dedicate his life to helping animals. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. I'm your host, Keith Sanderson, and our guest today is Francis Batista, a co-founder of Best Friends Animal Society. Hi, Francis. Thank you so much for being with us today.
1: Uh, Hi, Keith. Uh, Thank you for having me.
0: It's really great. I've been a fan of Best Friends for years and and to talk to a founder is really Quite inspiring to me. Francis, I imagine many of our listeners are surprised to learn that you studied physics and engineering in college.
1: (laughs) Do you want me to recite some equations? No,
0: no, no, but what I would like you to do, can you share with us how and why you became involved founding an organization that helps animals? And did you grow up having pets as a child?
1: I'm glad you're not asking to recite any uh, equations because I couldn't. Thank you for the, it's a slightly grandiose, uh, the fact that I studied it and was, uh, you know, got into the, those courses out of high school, reflected a certain level of skill, but not sufficient to really make my career there, mainly because that, you know, you have to be seriously interested and committed to that kind of work, and I wasn't. And what I was committed to and interested in was really, like Max, finding a, a better way of life, you know, and uh, looking to... Uh, the world around me and this was of course the 60s it was an interesting time and a time when there were the opportunities or apparent opportunities to remake the world were were being offered presented and people were being encouraged to to do what they could do to make a better place and a better world and one of the things in the founding between the founding of best friends and my brief sojourn in science and engineering was considerable amount of time although I began to get involved in animal rescue in the late 1960s, uh, actually in animal advocacy, beginning with uh, anti-vivisection. So the the first calling or work that uh, I was involved in was writing and pamphleteering and advocating against the use of animals in experiments. And then in the early 1970s, began to get into shelter rescue work. And the calling of best friends or the mission of best friends, which is to bring about a time when there are no more homeless pets or to, and what that means in practical terms is ending shelter killing. But suddenly it came out of a, just a fundamental belief that uh, the animals matter. Their lives have intrinsic value. They're not ours to abandon, abuse, to treat with uh, disrespect or to treat like a, you know, a used tire or an old toaster and throw away especially those animals that we have bred and cultivated and nurtured and made part of our society. They are domesticated animals. They're animals that we designed to be our companions. So it really nagged at me the fact that here we have uh, encouraged these dogs and cats particularly to be devoted companions to us and we are not reciprocating that devotion and faithfulness.
0: That is really what bothers me uh, when I think about the carnage of the animals that they really do put their trust in us. I mean you see a dog in, in a shelter and even though it may have been mistreated most of them still look at us with you know with trust in their eyes and they've evolved along with us for 12 14,000 years, and uh, we turn around and do those dastardly deeds to them. It's just...
1: Absolutely. Right with you there, Keith. Yeah, I mean, how do you, you know, we really, the animal welfare movement, and especially the no-kill movement, is about people acting like the humans that we aspire or pretend to be. You know, that we should be as good as our animal companions in terms of commitment and faithfulness and loyalty. These are basic human aspirations and virtues. This isn't anything odd or uh, it's not some strange sentimental activity. This is about us being true to our virtue and our values that we hold up as what a human being is is about. And it applies across the board, whether we're talking about the animals, the environment, each other. Kindness and compassion doesn't begin here and end there. It's a, a continuum and it's an approach to life.
0: That's very true. And can you give us a figure of about how many dogs and cats are euthanized daily at shelters in the United States?
1: Yes, and I'm glad you asked because so many people have no clue as to how widespread the killing of shelter animals is and what the numbers are. You know, some people think, "Oh, maybe 3 or 400." 9,000 dogs or cats die in our shelters every day. 9, you-
0: 9,000? 9,000? What a waste. I mean, that's just incredible. 9,000. And their bodies are just thrown in landfills then, right? They're
1: thrown in landfills. Some are rendered, sent to rendering plants. I mean, it's awful. It's terrible. It's, it is treating them like garbage. And, you know, when there's an interesting analogy that I like to point out. When Hurricane Katrina struck, uh, that was in 2005, people from all over the country, I mean, obviously, there was a huge human dimension to that. But there was also a huge animal component to that. And people from all over the country, when they saw these images on the television of dogs swimming in this filthy water or being stranded in the sun for days on roofs of cars or roofs of houses, were horrified. And people flocked to New Orleans to rescue animals. And uh, the... Federal government even passed something called the Pets Act, which required future uh, and future disasters, people who wanted communities that wanted FEMA funding to make provision for the evacuation of pets. Nobody knows how many animals died during Katrina, but a reasonable estimate is somewhere in the 50, 60, 70,000 range.
0: Really? Now,
1: I... Well, I mean, there are no numbers. People yeah. estimate as high as 150 and as low as 15 to 20. But let's just say, 50,000, which is somewhere in the middle. So Katrina is happening in our shelters every week. A disaster the scale of Hurricane Katrina for our animals is happening every week in our nation's shelters. And it needs the same kind of urgency of response and commitment from municipalities and government officials to address it. We need to prioritize it just like we did with Katrina. We changed laws that made it, that reduced the impact of disasters on companion animals, and we need to address it as a priority in public policy in the same way. And it can be done. We can be a no-kill country.
0: Well, one of my little campaigns that I do, just a personal thing, is that uh, on, my f- on the Facebook pages, if I, I read uh, somebody has a criticism about, well, what's happening to dogs and uh, China, and I, I certainly agree that it's terrible, and I write that, and then I'll also say, but let's not forget what we're doing to dogs and cats here in the United States and maybe, you know, we should remember that and create some awareness closer to home as well as uh, advocating for overseas. Because, you know, in, in terms of carnage, does any country match us in that kind of carnage of uh, domestic uh, animals such as cats and dogs?
1: You know, I don't track international numbers. I'm sure that there's tremendous suffering in a lot of uh, countries and I, and they don't even track those kind of numbers. But when you talk about the culls in, in cities for uh, in China or in some other uh, parts of the world where there's a, an episodic rounding up and killing of usually street dogs, you have to remember that in the late 19th century in this country, in New York City, they used to drown dogs in the river. They used to round them up, put them in a holding area and put them in cages and lower them into the East River to drown. That was animal control in the late 19th century in the United States. So we've come a long way from that. And uh, hopefully these other uh, parts of the world will as they grow and uh, develop deeper relationships with the, their animal companions will change. But there are other parts of the, the world, and Europe particularly, where this isn't the case. Shelter killing is not the issue.
0: Now, you know, I guess the reason for the population of cats and dogs in the shelters is there, at least some people say, is because of the overpopulation. What are the primary causes of overpopulation of dogs? And are these the same reasons for the overpopulation? of cats in the United States?
1: Well, I think when we talk about overpopulation, it's all quite relative. There is, you know, I guess on total a surplus of dogs and cats and the ones that are out of the mix wind up in shelters. But when you think about it, there are there's a demand for by the public for somewhere in the region of seventeen million new pets each year. So seventeen million homes will bring in a pet. And a lot of people are still acquiring their pets from either a breeder or from somebody down the street who had a litter or wherever. We want them to adopt. So it's really a matter of shifting the public's focus on where people acquire their pets and drying up those other markets so that the equation balances out. But the numbers of animals and, and that are entering shelters are, relate frequently to, with cats to community cats and out-of-control breeding. And we've addressed in many communities by TNR programs or what we're now calling shelter neuter return programs where rather than coming into the shelter, the shelters are have incorporated integrated TNR programs where uh, community cats don't really ever come into the shelter system. They are brought in, they're spayed or neutered, and returned to their locations. And we've seen in communities that are undertaking that kind of practice that the populations as reflected in the numbers of kittens that are turning up in shelters being reduced and reduced and reduced. So there are ways to approach this. Dogs. It's the same thing, but it's really a matter of promoting more adoptions for
0: dogs. Right, right. You know with community cats, it's interesting. I'm, we're going to have a guest in a couple of weeks who is working in Chicago and uh, with uh, feral cat communities. And uh, one way she's gotten the city to become more interested as a means of rat control. She's a Ph.D., and what she's discovered is sort of, I, I think, would be the obvious, and anybody who knows cats and rats, is that where the cats are, the rats disappear. Rats in major cities like Chicago and New York are a problem. So it's sort of interesting how some people are working to uh, get positive reasons for tax money to go into, into the helping the animals.
1: Well, and that isn't that our historic relationship to the cats. We have this collaboration with these other species based on mutual interest. And whether it's you know hunting and guarding and herding for dogs, or rodent pest control for cats, you know that's how we originally formed these these relationships. I think one of the things that we've seen is that uh, very proactive trap-neuter-return programs that are done on a on a community-wide scale that can only be really effectively done through municipalities and through local animal services, when it's done on that scale, it has a tremendous effect and reduces the number of cats at large and the number of cats coming into shelters. So that's uh, a very, very key and important piece of this whole puzzle.
0: And uh, I think a very important piece. Now, you know, we've been fringing around uh, talking about the no-kill movement, and, and Best Friends Animal Society is uh, certainly a primary force in that movement. Can you explain exactly what no-kill means? Does that mean no animal gets killed? or And can you provide an example or examples sure. of successes?
1: Sure. Well, when... Going back to the origins of this conversation and this movement back in the um, 1980s, about 17 million animals were dying in our nation's shelters. Currently, it's about 3.5 to 4 million, so you see that a lot of progress has been made. And when we were talking about no-kill, what we were talking about was that killing animals is not an acceptable means of population control. So population control by killing animals homeless pets is what we were talking about. And that the default method of managing animals in our communities and our populations of animals has been historically to kill them. So the no-kill movement is about saying, no, that killing animals is not an appropriate method of a management of animals in our communities. We need to change that paradigm. And so the no-kill movement grew out of that and come to mean um, by definition or as the commonly accepted definition of no-kill is to a 90% live release rate or a 90% save rate, meaning that 9 out of 10 animals that enter a given shelter system have a positive outcome. They're either returned to their owner or they are adopted to a new home. Now, that's just a threshold. That's just a sort of an arbitrary market that says if you are achieving that, nine out of 10 animals having a positive outcome, then it's fairly safe to say that this municipality is not killing animals for convenience or for population control, or on a whim. They are making a serious commitment to a humane approach, a non-lethal approach to management of animals in their community. Now, reach higher numbers, and communities have reached higher numbers. So 94, 95% is not unusual. Take Reno, Nevada. Reno, Nevada was one of the first and most significant countries to achieve no-kill in 2007 under the leadership of Bonnie Brown, who's one of our former colleagues here at Best Friends and someone who works in this field and is achieved great results. Reno became a no-kill city and uh, and by 2008, she went to work there in 2007, within a year and a half, Reno was a a no-kill city and they had, by the time she left that position uh, a year or so ago, they were achieving a 94% live release rate, not just for their shelter but for the entire county. And that's uh, quite
0: significant. I okay, have one question, though. So I'm making the assumption then that the other six percent are animals that are either very ill or, for some reason, uh, survival is very unlikely.
1: Well, that's that's when we're truly at no kill. We are talking about a situation where the only animals, the only only animals that are losing their lives in our system are animals that are either where it's truly a mercy, where animals are either too sick too injured to be reasonably treated so that there's no prognosis for an outcome, a successful outcome as a result of veterinary care, or if they're too dangerously aggressive to be safely adopted to the public. And curiously, Keith, you know, when you talk about you know, the crazy folks back in 30 years ago, that's what we were preaching. We were preaching the idea that animals should not be killed unless they are suffering, irremediably suffering from some disease or some injury, or if they're legitimately dangerous. Now, interestingly, polls show now that that's what 70% of the general public believes, that animals in shelters should only be killed if they are too sick or injured to be you know, rehabilitated or respond to treatment, or if they're too dangerously aggressive to be adopted to the public. So the public now is taking on the opinion that we had as a fringe idea back in 1984. That's now a mainstream belief. So the public is right there. Uh, This is not an outlier notion or an outlier idea. This is what the public believes, and we need to translate that public sentiment to action in all of these communities around the country, just like with Katrina.
0: Francis, speaking of needs, uh, we need to take a break right now. But when we return, I want to hear what you have to say to the critics of No Kill. But first, a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back, right after these messages. Stay tuned. It's designerpetsweaters.com, the latest fashion trends for our furry friends. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. designerpetsweaters.com Calling all pet product manufacturers and pet experts. Let the public relations and marketing professionals at WhiteGate PR get you featured in the news. I'm Dana Humphrey at WhiteGate PR, and we have been specializing in pet product PR for over 10 years and can get your brand featured in the media from TV to radio to print to blogs. You can find out more at www.WhiteGatePR.com. Join us here on Pet Life Radio on a Super Smiley Adventure. Good boy. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. 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 (laughs) PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates. Our guest today is Francis Batista, co-founder of Best Friends Animal Society and a thought leader in the no-kill movement. Francis, as we were saying before break, there are critics who claim no-kill is impossible to achieve. Can you tell us why they're wrong?
1: Yes, I'm very happy to tell you (laughs) why they're wrong. Well, I I think that it's been proven and demonstrated clearly that no-kill is not impossible. For example, you take the city of Los Angeles, uh, where we are running NKLA, a a citywide coalition of like-minded organizations that are committed to making the city of Los Angeles a no-kill city. And when we started this campaign in... 2012, to, at the end of 2011, 23,000 animals were killed in city shelters in Los Angeles. At the yeah. end of 2013, that number was down to 14,000. It's going to be down further this year, just probably something like 11,000 or lower. We are, and it's the implementation of deliberate, proactive, targeted programs to reduce shelter intake, what we call noses in, and to increase noses out, adoptions and return to owners. It is perfectly doable, it's not rocket science. And sadly, many of the critics come from the animal welfare movement. And when you think about it, most of the old school operators of shelters were schooled in the idea that this is a necessary evil that they don't have the resources or the time or the funding or the training or whatever reason you might imagine to do the, the work that's necessary to end shelter killing. We totally reject that idea. It's just not the case. It is, uh, If we prioritize it, we can do it. We're not waiting for the cure for cancer. There's nothing new here. It's simply being more deliberate and more targeted in the work that we do, uh, community by community, to reduce the number of animals entering shelters and to increase the number of animals leaving shelters.
0: It's interesting. I've done some reading on that. And you'll look at shelters where they don't even market or didn't the availability of of the animals in their care. And uh, to me, that would seem like if you have these animals, let's let everybody know that they're available for adoption. And uh, there were some, it seemed to me, some really basic things that you've been able to, to help people see and then take them to the next step.
1: Well, Keith, when you think about it, it's not surprising because the model that shelters have been based on since, again, going back to the turn of the 20th century, the late 1800s, beginning of the ni- early 1900s, it was essentially a public health effort. Animal shelters were really targeting removing dogs that were regarded as a public health threat from circulation on the streets and bringing them into some central location. If they were owned, people had the opportunity to redeem them. If there was a very feeble, passive relationship to adoption. But basically, it wasn't an animal welfare enterprise. Animal sheltering was a public health enterprise. And the changes, the humane changes were through advocates at local levels, kind of nibbling at the system from below. So these changes that have been made to the sheltering paradigm over the years are really concessions to local advocacy. The whole thing needs a redesign from the top down from the perspective of animal welfare. And that's kind of what the no-kill movement is doing. It's reprioritizing the idea of a shelter system. The shelter system should be a humane support for the animals in our communities, not a public health last resort to kill animals because they might pose a risk to humans. Sure, that's possible, but if we jump another step higher, we will solve that problem and in a humane, compassionate way that doesn't undermine our values and it's a soul-destroying activity for people to be killing Beautiful animals every day.
0: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned that uh, it started at the local level. The uh, shelter, a no kill shelter where um, I found uh, Max, um, was founded in 1929 by a lady by the name of Irene Castle. And um, you know, she literally went into the city and, and would pick up dogs and bring them out to the suburbs where she had founded this shelter. It was a novel idea at that time. I think some people probably thought she was eccentric. No,
1: what was the name of the what was the shelter what was the name of that shelter?
0: It's uh, Orphans of the Storm Animal Shelter, and where is it located? It's located in um, a North suburb of Chicago. That's
1: wonderful. It's really wonderful. God bless her.
0: Yeah, she was uh, In fact, it's her story that actually is a story behind this program, and that I adopted a dog, and like many people, this you know he made a bigger difference on me than I made on him. And I got to thinking about this woman back in 1929 founding this shelter and what an impact it made on me. So knowing that, a lot of critics will say, you know, like, why do you waste time on animals? And the answer to me is it's not only for the animals, it's for the people. So that's why we have awesome animal advocates now, thanks to this lady back in uh, 1929 who founded a shelter in the north suburbs of Illinois
1: well, that's wonderful. I'm going to look into it. and I feel uh, remiss at not being more aware of it. And there are other places, you know, like by Dewey in New York is a very longstanding no-kill shelter sanctuary, but where the, the no-kill movement stepped out and where, you know, Best Friends began as a, a no-kill sanctuary. But the, the no-kill movement is really now taking that concept of the value of life into the city and municipal operations. And that's kind of is where, uh, you know, the rubber meets the road in terms of influencing the practicalities of municipal government, limited budgets, all sorts of other competing priorities, and implementing these no-kill principles. But it's doable. And ultimately, it saves money and saves lives and uh, changes the perspective of uh, you know animal control from dog catcher to friend.
0: Right, right. Now, what can we do on a local level to, to help uh, local animal shelters change from the uh, old model to the new model?
1: Well, there are a number of things, and one is simply to advocate for it to make let the to translate that passion that people have for their animals and the understanding that these lives have value into action at a local municipal level by communicating that with your local city council people and what you expect them to provide in terms of resources for sheltering and also what is expected of the local shelter in terms of outcomes. So that, you know, for example, some municipalities award contracts to humane organizations to run their animal control operations. And some of these are done on numbers. So the contract is based, okay, if you handle you know, X number of thousands of dogs and cats, then we will pay you this. So they're paid by, on a quantity basis, which is an utter disincentive to reduce the number of animals coming into the shelter. So you have, now it becomes a jobs program. So that's crazy. Sheltering should not be about jobs. It should be about the humane care of the animals in our communities. And by rewarding contracts based on numbers of animals handled, you totally disincentivize the idea of improving those numbers or reducing the numbers of animals coming into the shelters. So there are just very simple things that could start to change the way local municipalities and shelters approach this work. But it starts with people being engaged and involved, talking to their city council and letting people know that they want to see changes and they want to see no-kill philosophy implemented and and no-kill programs and and, uh, policies at a public policy level, being implemented in their communities. And we are there to help with how-tos, and there are a lot of other folks around that can help guide organizations and municipalities in this direction.
0: Where can my listeners get more information about helping out if they, they're so inclined?
1: Well they can visit bestfriends.org and go to the you know various buttons there that lead them through uh, how to act, uh, you know how to take action, how to be involved locally about We have a, a, a network best friends network partners uh, that uh, there are more than a thousand organizations around the country that we participate with and support through promotions and campaigns and there are organizations in virtually every community around the country that share these values and these ideals and so you can visit best friends to find out who's doing what in your community and also how you can take action with your city council and you know this is not uh doesn't need to be uh, adversarial this is simply about communicating what's important to you and what you want to see happen in your community.
0: Yeah I think that's a key thing because as you said before a lot of it's just awareness and i think many rational people when they find out really the numbers they say oh my goodness and then at the local level by by doing something there obviously those big national numbers start to dwindle what other major activities is best friends animal society involved
1: well, we have, the sanctuary is the heart of our work. And the sanctuary is located in the Red Rock country of Southern Utah, it's 3,000 acre reserve. We look after about, on any given day, 1,700 dogs, cats, horses, farm animals, injured wild birds. We do wildlife rehabilitation. And we support uh, the efforts of local rescue around the country by helping them with problem animals. We also have dedicated programs in the state of Utah. So the, we have a statewide program in the state of utah to end shelter killing here and that's been progressing dramatically well we have a city program in los angeles that is on track to realize a no-kill community in the city of los angeles with the six city shelters of the city of los angeles by 2017. we have our as i was talking earlier about these uh shelter integrated tnr programs we inaugurated that in albuquerque in tucson in san antonio um, in Baltimore, supported in Jacksonville, in Atlanta, and we are now um, engaged in uh, programs in New York City. So, we are pretty spread out. We do work, and again, I say we have uh, you know a, a thousand network partners that we support through promotions and campaigns and fundraising opportunities.
0: Wow, that's all very, very ambitious, and uh, I hope everyone who's listening will take it to heart and go pitch in, because it really is a local grassroots effort that's going to change this terrible story that uh, is part of our history of mistreating animals. Francis, I ask each of my guests this question, and that's, how with all the human misery and suffering in the world, can you justify spending time, money, and resources on helping animals? Well,
1: thank you for asking, because I think that anyone, and you know, I've spent a lot of time at tables uh, talking to the public at a very grassroots level about the work that we do. And often I'll be side by side with someone who's working with the homeless or with child abuse or some other cause. And there is always an enormous level of appreciation and respect across these lines. There's no problem between people who are doing compassionate work. Kindness isn't something, as I said before, that begins at point A and ends at point B. It's an approach to life that includes the animals. We can't exclude the animals and expect to have a, a, a compassionate society that's going to solve human problems. If we are compassionate towards the issues of our fellow human beings, we are going to be compassionate towards the needs of our fellow creatures and likewise the needs of the environment. You can't separate these things. They are part of a continuum and I have absolute respect for people who devote their lives to the needs of our fellow human beings and um, this is part of that same motivation. It's simply directed towards animals, but when you're dealing with animals, really you are dealing with people. So many people, really what you're doing is helping people fulfill their commitments and their obligations. And there are so many individuals who come to us who are desperate and heartbroken that life circumstances have resulted in them having to find a home for an animal. And they are desperate. And the idea of taking that animal to a shelter is unthinkable. So, most of the work when you're involved in animal welfare is working with
0: people. That's a great answer, and uh, I hope uh, that everyone who heard you play that back because it, you know it, there's a lot of, I think, passion and behind of what you said.
1: Well, thank you, Keith, and kudos to you for doing the work you're doing and bringing this to public attention. And uh, thanks for opening my eyes to that Orphans of the Storm.
0: Well, they were really great. In fact, this Irene Castle had been an internationally known dancer back in the 20th century. And the 1939 movie made with uh, Ginger Rogers and Fred Astaire was about... Oh, really? Yeah.
1: It's that castle, is it?
0: Yes, yes. And uh, her first husband died, and she married the um, person who uh, founded the Chicago Blackhawks. So obviously lived in the uh, Chicago area, and that's how she ended up founding. What a cool story. Yeah, it really is. It really is. We've run out of time, and and this has been great because, as I said, I've been a fan of your organization for years, and it's really a thrill talking with you, Francis. Again, thank you for being with us.
1: Well, and thank you for the privilege of being on.
0: And Max A. Pooch gives you five big tail-wagging wolfs For what you do, because he knows your work directly saves the lives of dogs, cats, and other animals. And I want to thank Mark Winter, executive producer and co-founder of Pet Life Radio and the sponsors who make this program possible. Please join us for each and every episode of Max A. Pooch's Awesome Animal Advocates, and be sure to tell your friends about us. Remember, until we meet again, when you do a good thing for animals, you help to make the world a better place for animals and also for humans.